right, everyone. You think you've heard it all before, all the jobs in the world. But let me tell you, I didn't know about this shit until like Raja came on <laughs> Hinge, I believe. And I saw this job and I was like, yo, we got to talk about it. Y'all, I'm so pleased to announce we have Raja Benz on our podcast. Go ahead and let everyone know what's up. Hi. Hi. Yeah, my name is Raja. Um, I use the she series of pronouns and I have this crazy wild job called being an intimacy director. Um, and of course, as Hobbs is so beautifully pointed out, uh, definitely love to put that on my hinge. Um, <laughs> yes. If you ever see me on there and you want to know more about it, by all means, go ahead, send that like. Um, yeah, I've been working as an intimacy director, if you will, um, for, oh God, probably about two, a little over two years now. Wow. And essentially what an intimacy director is, is I oversee the choreography um, of scenes that depict intimacy in kind of all of its forms. So it's most frequently understood of like scenes that include sexual contact. Mm -hmm. um, but at times it'll also include things like when identity-based acting is happening in the room, uh, stories of medical trauma, um, mm. births, for example, being one of them. Um, scenes where a character, an actor might be using a little bit of personal self in the process. Uh, and so I'm just really helping facilitate that uh, everything that's happening around that is really consensual. It's working within uh, the actor's boundaries. And we're not asking people like at work to like go have sex with your coworker because it's not really what you do at any other job unless you work at a trashy bar enrichment. Um, but that's not a requirement as much as a like, just <laughs> no I'm kidding it's a bad joke um it, it's not it's not common to be walked in to walking into a working space and being asked to like understand your coworker as a sexual counterpart uh beyond yeah. like, this is your coworker at the end of the day mm. um, yeah that's so yeah you just like airdrop right into like the thick of it every day at work <laughs> really well I'm thinking about how many people like will get confused about it because a good actor is going to make you believe their performance right so it's pretty easy when somebody's playing like an intimate scene with you to be like oh this is real like they really feel this way about me which can be very uncomfortable um <laughs> and it, it, it is it's not even that it can be it just is yo um, yes showmances right have we seen mm -hmm. where people oh are like really not clear about like this is my personal life and this is my professional life and when they start to weave together it's just a really dangerous way of working and making art absolutely i was watching that movie six degrees of separation it's like one of will smith's like first movies and i was reading it up in the interviews afterwards and he was like yeah like i had to stay away from romance movies because like i fell in love with stalker channing and like it was really weird for me really uncomfortable for her in like her marriage and like I just had to take a step away until he like went back and did Hitch but like it can totally ruin you know work <laughs> falling in yeah. love with your coworker. well and like intimacy exists in our everyday lives like we do it on stage and we do it at home like when I'm done with a scene I still go have intimacy in my personal life yeah. and like that's untrue about a lot of things like I think we get compared to like um like fight directors really frequently mm. um, because the kind of the birth of intimacy was this question of like, well, if we're, we have all these safety protocols in fights, why do we not have them in intimacy? 
And while it's a really valid question that like brought us to like having this field, it kind of misses a, a few key points for me. One of them being like, I don't go do a bar fight scene in a show and then go start a bar fight. Um, but I do kiss a coworker and then go home and like kiss a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just sits in a, in a kind of um, personal space in a way that isn't really true about other, um, other things we ask actors to do. Mm. there just wasn't a lot of process and I think it's because we're really shy about intimacy like as a just a culture in general right Um, it makes mm -hmm. me think about like how all of these things of talking about boundaries and can like active you know and enthusiastic yes consent how that should just be stuff that is sort of ingrained in us and just practiced on the reg on a regular basis And so it makes me wonder about, like, have you had experiences where this is super new to someone and you're kind of having to teach them a new way of even just interacting with a partner, essentially? Yeah, I mean, actor training for, like, its entirety has been predicated on saying yes. Um, I think about particularly improv training, right? It's that yes and. I'm going to take everything my uh, my partner's giving me because it's in good faith. And by having a boundary, we're not really saying like, I think you're doing something incorrect. It's just my boundaries are what they are. They're actually usually not reflective of you. Um, and I find that to be the case when we have a history of actor tra- and performer training in general. I, I think this goes well beyond just actors. I think this is true about all performing artists and really artists of all types is we ask them to bear a particular sense of self in the work, but we've never trained them how to like manage a healthy relationship with that. Um, And I think it's particularly important for um, queer people actually, um, because I think there's an expansion of queer stories that's happening, um, but when they're still being told by and are produced by non-queer bodies, Uh, oftentimes they have a full misunderstanding of what an intimacy between queer bodies even would mean. Uh, A really great example of this um, is uh, my kind of main mentor. I shouldn't drop names here. I'm going to do that back real quick. I'll take it out. I'll take it out. (laughs) No, but a really great example of that is Uh, I worked with an intimacy director who was contacted by another intimacy director about a show that's going to be happening. And the question was like, what do I need to know about anal sex to stage this scene? And the intimacy director went, whoa, 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 whoa. We're already on the wrong page here. Um, If you're approaching staging queer intimacies by first asking about what do these genitals do? Hmm. Uh, Because as I stage queer intimacy, and I think about being one of the queer intimacy directors in this field, I'm thinking about like how I can include queerness in ways that are not overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working with some actors right now over at Signature Theater in Arlington. And there's some, some queer interactions that are happening. And as we were staging, we were explaining to them like one of the things that queer people need to do for our safety is to signal to each other like I am or you. And there's this game that happens, I mean, For me, it's pretty obvious, like I'm visually very queer, but um, I think about how many people need to like do things like signals, how many coded languages were used in history, Um, hanky codes being this wonderful example of how 
queer people have identified each other um, and how like staging a queer intimacy requires all of that as well because there's spaces where queer people aren't just like overtly being like, I am queer, who will be intimate with me? Like there's this, this identification that happens. Um, and it became this question, right, of, okay, so most of the audience isn't gonna catch that. And we arrived on this idea that it's like, it's okay that there's like coded language in the queer stories we tell that only the queer people get because they're the audiences we want anyways, right? Um, so yeah. like, how do, we start, how do we start stating for the audiences that we want, not the audiences that we get? Yes. Um, and so if a, if a heterosexual doesn't catch all the nuances in my storytelling, I'm not really that bothered by it um, because it's always been a safety practice for us. We've always tried to kind of subvert an understanding of our queerness and, and to, for me at least, I'm such a damn anti-assimilationist queer. <laughs> But I'm like, I don't want a dominant audience to necessarily know the ways that we code and, and signal to each other to make sure that we're safe in spaces. Mm. Um, so intimacy in that way is so much more when you're taking a queer perspective on that. Like, yeah, you have to worry about the boundaries of actors. Yeah, we're working, we're working within consent, but that's kind of for me more of a baseline. Um, on which stories I can tell or on which I, I build the stories. Mm -hmm. So the consent's in place, yeah, but uh, it's a frequent misunderstanding, I think, of the field to think like that's the one thing that I do. Mm. I think that comes from a particular brand of white feminism, to be honest. Mm. Um, just, uh, I wrote a whole thesis about this. I won't talk here too hard on this, but uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings of like the origins of the field, right. um, specifically because everyone started hiring intimacy directors in the wake of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. um, but there was actually, in fact, years and years of research being done, uh, boundaries being set. Directors had processes for this. It just didn't really become a codified system mm -hmm. until Me Too and the particulars of white women in Hollywood raising concerns about their working conditions that it actually became normal in the field for this to be part of it. So within maybe, what is it? I would say the election of 45 in 2016, we see a huge expansion in the years uh, following with the Me Too movement happening around that time. Uh, there were some cases in Chicago that brought this to national attention. Um, but it just, it's, it's a little troubling to me that uh, the field is misunderstood because I think in particular, like queer people have always had ways of protecting ourselves in intimate spaces. Uh, and my work is like, is an intimacy director. I, I don't ever want to go into a space and like tell someone how they need to be doing things. I want to just get everyone better. Right. Um, I'm not the sex police. I think that that's a <laughs> common misunderstanding. I'm gonna come in here and like, yeah, you can't say that word. No, <laughs> I guess like zooming out though a little bit in terms of like, not only I'm sure like in your field of what you're describing, but with all jobs, like consent is like kind of towing the line between, am I gonna stay here today or can I get fired today? And I guess I'm kind of wondering like where that line kind of lives more so in theater. Like, cause when mm -hmm. I saw your thesis and you talking about it and you just introduced consent and like what it means to be an actor like negotiating for that like in my mind it's like like you were describing before it's like it's always so yes and like how do we know like when we can say no 
or like for the sake of the art and like whose vision gets to like, you know, be tampered with because of that no? Yeah, the no is a really interesting thing because we could have a process where we say things like, oh, if you don't like this, you can just tell me no. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't consider all of the factors in which no is not a safe option. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to lose your job for saying no, you're not going to say no. You're going to say yes and deal with that. Um, and particularly true about actors, since we're often working on like contracts, we're more of a gig style thing. Um, and also just this myth of the easy to work with actor. If you're a difficult actor to work with, no one will want to hire you. Uh, which translates to if you have too many boundaries, we're going to see you as a diva and, and you're not someone to work with. When in fact, those are the actors who are, in my opinion, the best to work with because not only are they bringing in their boundaries, boundaries are actually creative exercises for me. I've never come up to a boundary as an intimacy director that I couldn't find something that I could, um, I'm hesitant to even say work around, but uh there's no boundary I couldn't take into consideration and still tell the story I want to tell. Mm. Um, because if your vision is so delicate that you must see like this specific penetrative act between these two characters, like you're probably have a pretty weak vision of the show. Mm. Um, yeah. A great example is uh, I was brought in to do a scene between a heterosexual couple um a cis man and a cis woman and they were staging it and uh staging the intimacy and I looked at them I was like okay I didn't say this out loud but in my mind I was like okay so he is the receptive partner in this mm-hmm. sexual contact um and so I wanted to discuss with the director the potentiality that like this was not going to be penetrative his penis her vagina which of course is choreographed and you know isn't really what's happening on stage but even the illusions we were telling, it didn't feel like that was the power dynamic that was happening in the play. It didn't feel like the way that these two characters made contact with each other. And so I asked the director was like, do you think that like staging this in a very normative heterosexual way is really like, I understand these are heterosexual characters, but like she appears to be in the power here. So like, can this be a scene of him receiving and the director just like it just completely glossed over couldn't understand that one a heterosexual couple could be engaging in you know play in which uh the cis male partner was receptive tangential but I have a lot of opinions about Dan Savage introducing the word pegging (laughs) uh into the canon so I'll fully go on that tangent in in a a moment for you gladly but um you know I was just thinking like Oftentimes when we have like non-culturally competent intimacy directors, we're actually reinforcing stories Mm. um, of power and dominance, particularly in like a heteropatriarchy. Um, And so my role is so much more about disrupting that. It it is about the actor's boundaries in many ways, but I'm like thinking like, how can I queer everything around me, even the like heteronormative contact? I didn't get my way, it wasn't a packing scene. whatever I guess so really you're just coming into these places and being like let me make this interesting (laughs) right well there's a thousand (laughs) things right like when I get just the stage directions they kiss 
What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what kind of kiss, man? Like, are we nagging? Is there tongue? Like, what's good? Is there passion? It doesn't grabbing a neck. Or sometimes you get really um like state directions that don't make any sense. Like, I understand this is supposed to be sexual contact, but they devour each other. Doesn't really give me anywhere to play. Well, gives me a lot to play with, but um, what the fuck does that mean? Right. You know what so, I mean? Doctors will think about Whenever you come into like direct intimacy, direct a scene, do you get uh, sort of the entire script and get an understanding of of the whole story, um, and then go from there? Yeah, so I'll read the full script before I agree to take on any show. Okay. Um, the reason being, I'm looking for things like art, queer and trans bodies represented um, in appropriate ways not appropriate, uh, appropriative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm usually not willing to work on a show if I don't understand the content of it. I haven't had to turn any down really for that reason, which has been nice. Um, but I think about like if somebody asked me to do say a show like Tootsie that like reinforces like the men in drag uh-huh. uh, stereotype about trans women, like I would say like, absolutely not. Like actually I think you should never produce the show. Right. Um, So I have a good understanding of where the intimacy lies often when I'm agreeing on, but I do go through a pretty detailed process with the director about their vision. Mm -hmm. Um, And I offer them kind of three options. Uh, They can dictate to me exactly what they want to see. I'll make it happen. Um, Or they can hand it off to me entirely and I'll deal with it how I want to deal with it. Uh, Or there's kind of a middle ground, which is often my preferred, where we're collaborating together and we're figuring out not a little bird. Uh, <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, uh, we're figuring out their um, their vision and how it can show up in the choreography. So, like being a choreographer by nature, I'm not just interested in like this arm goes on this cheek, but like, can I have a callback? Is there repetitive choreography? Does this match the choreographic language of everything else that's happening around it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, if I have a play where time is sweeping i'm gonna be choreographing maybe more sweeping motions the arms might you know it might not be two bodies coming together like you know it's a different story right thousand and a half ways i can tell any story of intimacy um and because we've been so shy about it i think we just ignored it and thought that the actors would help like figure it out like they would have some like natural chemistry um Mm -hmm. so we wouldn't have to do the the difficult work about asking like why is this intimacy important what is the story we're trying to tell right yeah Hobbs and I were just talking about this podcast where they were talking about sensuality just in a sort of everyday kind of way where it's like sensuality in terms of paying attention to your senses and it was making this makes me think about um in the in that podcast too they were talking about how foreplay starts like all the time foreplay is just all the time essentially Mm -hmm. and um how bringing your sensuality out in sort of daily actions is that foreplay and so it it's making me wonder about and I would assume that many people that you have worked with then take any of the sort of ways that you're directing the specific scene and use those use that choreography throughout the entire story, right? So that it's 
so that it is more about just the the relationship building as a whole um versus like oh we're just you know intimate in private or something like that Mm. um it's it's like that's not really how it works a lot of the time so (laughs) Um, well, yeah, we wear our intimacies pretty publicly, um, and they sometimes are behind a door in a bedroom kind of thing, and like that is a certain type of intimacy. Um, but we have intimacy in all of our relationships, and so if I can craft them better processes for discussing and understanding each other's boundaries, mm-hmm. I don't really have to go in there and like dictate exactly what that looks like. Um, I just want to give them better tools to go through that process. So when I'm starting on a show, one of the first things I'll do is I'll teach them uh, what we call like a boundary practice, um, which comes out of theatrical intimacy education. The company I work for is uh, training standard training pedagogy. And it's a way of physically processing where my boundaries are today um, because they mm-hmm. change. You know, sometimes you walk into a rehearsal and you're just like, nobody nobody fucking touched me today and that's okay um but what that does too is it hopefully makes it more efficient so that every time I want to offer a touch I don't have to go is this okay is this okay is this okay because Mm -hmm. then we're looking at like our intimacy with each other is like it's going to be trauma based Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of again that result of this coming out of a me too movement is like yes safety is important yes uh respecting the boundaries of actors is important but I also can't approach it from the sense of like everybody has a traumatic relationship with their sexuality. Hmm. Uh, like I very much don't. I'm I, I'm uh, in my personal life a relatively outwardly sexualized person. Um, part of that, of course, is the result of being a trans woman of color. So my body is always seen as relatively sexual <laughs> um, in many ways, which I have many problems with, of course. But hmm. um, to assume a traumatic relationship with sexuality really puts actors at a disadvantage. Hmm. Um, And so uh, I don't really like when somebody's approaching me with kind of the kid gloves. Hmm. Uh, And I think that that's one of the pitfalls of of where this industry could be going Um, is like, I frequently find that most of the people I work with have some degree of relationship uh, to their own sexuality and boundaries that they're not necessarily working from 101. So me walking in here and being like, I have the answers to all of the concerns about boundaries you've ever had uh, negates a lot of lived life experience for them. Life lived that life experience, lived experience. That's right. Um, And I'm never, I think about this happens particularly when we're writing like culturally specific intimacy. Um, There was a, there was a show I saw where the intimacy director staged um, it was intimacy between uh, um, a black woman and a black man. And they were like, okay, well then you should like touch the hair and like play with the hair. And both the actors were like, we don't do that. Like this is not culturally specific choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, and it highlighted ways that intimacy is cultural. Um, it's personal and it, it shows up in different ways for different people. And so that was a great example of an opportunity for maybe an intimacy director to have a better understanding of like <clears throat> these characters who just engaged in like in intercourse wouldn't be playing with each other's hair after like that doesn't that doesn't read as true mm-hmm. for our audience 
Um, the converse side of this um, is also like we can stage some stereotypes really easily without, mm. without realizing it. I think there's way too many stories about like black men's sexuality being aggressive. And if yes. you're not paying attention to that, oh you can God. absolutely stage a scene that tells us the story that his he's either being sexually aggressive and that's a bad thing, mm-hmm. or you can even go and he's being sexually aggressive and that's a good thing. And that's reinforcing this, this like stereotype of like black men are here to steal our white women. And if you're not paying attention to those things, you don't know that you're putting that into your choreography and your storytelling. Mm. Yes like all too often is it like based on all of your experience has it become like pretty easy to tell when you can see something whether it's on screen or in a play and you're like I don't know if y'all really applied good intimacy ethics here um I try not to but like I definitely can see it at times um because there's just this hesitation um and it happens and I see it more in theater to be honest because film has really started to figure out how to like not work around it, but like if there's like an awkward thing where like the pelvises are further than they need to be, then you can just like change the shot. Mm. Um, so speaking specifically from a, a theatrical perspective, oh, it is so obvious. Not even necessarily that the intimacy was done poorly, like by like an intimacy director, but just that thought wasn't put into what the story is here. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes the history was like, okay, there's a makeout scene. So the two of you go on that couch and figure it out. Right. They know that they're not really intimate partners. They're not sure how much of self to bring into it. So then they're doing these like really awkward things where they're like leaning into each other, but their pelvises are six feet away. Yes. <laughs> they don't realize how awkward that's reading. Like nobody, nobody does that. Right. Yes. I was, I did theater growing up and I remember there was a smooching scene in like junior high or something. And it was one of those things where literally, they didn't do it at any rehearsal right and like the time of the show that is exactly what the kiss looked like like they were completely avoiding each other's bodies but then their lips were touching and it was so uncomfortable and you're doing that to kids who might not even have their first kiss there's an entire generation of theater kids running around here whose first kiss was in that context where an adult was overseeing it saying go ahead that's weird that's your teacher that is weird it is weird for your teacher to be like oh yeah go be intimate with each other no it's weird but when we flip that, all right, I'm really curious to know what you think about really? this. When we flip that, all right, I've been thinking about that show, Euphoria, a lot. I know y'all mm. probably watch it. I know y'all probably love it. But, okay, drawing a line from, like, okay, when watching Degrassi when I was younger, I was like, okay, these kids are older than me. But like, they didn't look or feel like they could have been, like, 25, right? They seem, like, somewhat close to the age of, like, young people in high school going through, like, puberty and, like, figuring out sex and, like, relationships, right? But Euphoria, on the other hand, and granted, I know it's a huge dramatization, but I like have been reckoning with like this feeling of, okay, these are full on adults acting as high schoolers doing enormously explicit acts. And like now with season two, I feel like they just took it even further where like there's just dicks everywhere, like all over the place. And it's like, sure, that's great on one end of this in the sense of like, I feel like I've seen a lot more full frontal nudity for anyone but cis males but now it's like okay now we have this happening like what the fuck like what are your thoughts on like okay now it's adults telling other adults but be children 
doing adult things that children wouldn't do, but it's a show. Well, on one end, it's like, yeah, we want to educate a generation of people about like what intimacy can and will be for them in many ways. While at the same time, it's like, okay, that is aggressively like where we should invest in like comprehensive sex education. (laughs) Um, Because I'm thinking about specifically queer people who only I guess not who only, but um, oftentimes queer people identify their queerness in media. Um, And this is taking place in like major media, like euphoria, it's also happening in pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, And what does it mean when bodies that look like mine haven't been represented really anywhere in the history? Like like people that look like me just aren't in the history books. So I think I have this responsibility to be really mindful of like what I'm putting in that archive um, because I learned about my sexuality by sneaking into bars when I was 16. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I learned about my sexuality um, through really at times violent pornography against bodies that look like mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to figure out like on one end, I think it's really positive to see like young, young bodies, which are not actually young bodies negotiating these things but I think that perhaps the stronger way of going into this is like, how do we get a comprehensive sexual education where we understand these stories because we have the education to understand the nuance of what's happening here. Not that we're trying to evaluate it in that storytelling, because it also limits um, what a storyteller can do in that way. You know, Euphoria is not going out there, at least I think, I don't know, I keep getting told to watch it and then watch like, Watch like five minutes and then um, I got distracted with you. I didn't get to any intimacy in the show because I had to get to some intimacy in my real life. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I haven't seen it, but I, I would imagine, right, that the writers are not going out there to have a show that's just such a sex education, but with litter. Um, so relieving those storytellers of that too, I think is kind of important, but also uh, demanding that they represent whatever whatever identities and bodies they're attempting to represent, that they do that with authenticity and they do that in communication with that community. Um, it's why I really, really respect the work of somebody like Ann James, who is the founder of Intimacy Coordinators of Color um, and has really been a champion for getting that culturally specific intimacy to be part of what the field is becoming. Mm. Hobbs, what do you think about the whole euphoria thing? I know it's been Uh, ruined in your mind. I haven't seen it either. So I'm so torn up on it. Like I still watched the newest episode last night, but even like last night, I'm just like screaming at the TV. Like what the, what is this shit? But I think when you were saying like, we need this in tandem with, sexual education is like so spot on like it's we got some 41 year old white dude putting on these stories and all this shit with all these other young adults doing it but like at what cost for representation are we willing to like do that and then it just makes me draw a line to like the bachelor and how like everyone is like well we need more people of color on here blah blah blah. i'm like no leave us out of it leave us out of this shit this is not for us it's okay that can be us thing like i don't want to see my people get used and abused by this but if y'all want to do it for entertainment go off and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm still really like crushed. I feel like it's the same thing. as like when you ask me, like, am I still going to eat, keep eating squid? Like, I don't know. But I think my I don't know means yes. 
know. Yeah, embracing that I don't know sounds so lovely. I just, yeah. you know, I, I'm thinking about the push to representation, right? And like, how many times are these companies? So I assuming I don't I don't know much about Euphoria, but mm-hmm. in that way, but I'm I want to believe that at the end of the day, the people who are really high up on the production end of that probably don't look a lot like the characters. Um, and so like, what does it mean when we're pushing for representation, but we're s- like skipping entirely what that would actually mean? Right. Um, I won't go into like, if I'm asked on a panel, the first thing I'm doing is not asking if I'm the only trans person because often I'll know when that's the case. Um, but I wanna know that like the trans bodies that are being represented. So if it's a trans specific thing, uh, that not all of us look like um, traditionally feminine, feminine trans women. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even within this push to representation, like who's getting pushed forward, and are they often the people that look most like the dominant culture? Yeah, yeah right. they are. Yeah, the roots um, never really seem to go deep down enough to really actually get to what we're trying to see here, what we're trying to mm-hmm. change here. Unfortunately. No, and I, and I think we're getting there, and I think we're going to keep pushing in that direction. But I'm I'm hesitant to see how many people want to hire um, specifically trans people into telling their stories, but like don't have any support built into what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many questions about like, okay, like we're here, like what are you going to do for us? Right. And I know that that feels like really like a, a bad way to approach somebody you're working with, but it's like, if you want to tell my story instead of letting us tell it, because in every situation, having a community tell a story about itself is the stronger, like always, it's always going to be the best storytelling. And unfortunately, I just think people are resistant to giving that up and, and their right to tell other stories. Um, and that's where, it becomes really difficult to say yes or no to some projects like as an intimacy director mm-hmm. like okay you have one trans actor so you hired me the trans intimacy director but it's like what else is happening around this rehearsal that's supporting that actor you know yeah. are they getting the appropriate um dressing rooms are they being addressed by their pronouns by everyone on the crew mm-hmm. um, and to be clear of course like taking care of trans people goes beyond getting your pronouns right um it's about <laughs> big confirmed yes <laughs> um, and I just I don't know I'm I'm hesitant to see what happens when intimacies of queer bodies become the in thing to tell and uh we lose kind of our right to to be these becoming changing things like queerness has never meant one thing to me queerness has always been about becoming and changing in this 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 acknowledgement that like I don't know not to go all like philosophical queer time on people you know we love that shit yeah do it do it do it do it do it it. beyond the fact that our lives just follow different narratives like in terms of time it just means that like my relationship to like myself feels a little bit more temporal like I, I I know that I identify as a trans woman now and I don't necessarily see that changing for me, but I also like always live in that acknowledgement that it could. Whereas like, I think of a very heterosexual approach to it is like, oh, so you're trans. So you're always trans now. Um, names change, pronouns change and having that 
um okay cute story yes <laughs> only so talking to this cutie right now who like might hear this i don't know um totally talking to them it's been a lovely little thing not partners per se you know we've really just started seeing each other with some degree of regularity and so um abandonment issues matched with their commitment issues really fun thing to be working through one of the things that came up for us was like a commitment to like this partnership and I'm using that term really lightly isn't about asking you not to change or not to become um and that was like it really highlighted that for me as like our queerness if honoring my queerness means that I have to acknowledge that I'm always becoming and I'm always changing that will also be true about you which means that there might be times that continuing our relationship isn't an ideal situation so what I'm asking for something like a commitment is not necessarily I'm asking you not to change. It's saying like, as, as we change, can we be mindful of what this will mean together and like hopefully stay in communication as that happens. And that's when they started actually wanting to see me more. So hopefully, yes! <laughs> it, wasn't fake. it wasn't fake. I didn't pick that up. Um, I want this printed out on a shirt in small text. Yes. All of what I'm you just saying, said. I'm, my partner, I'm not asking you not to change. Right. I'm just asking you to be mindful that as our lives change, I would love to be in communication about what's happening. That is so beautiful. And then they were like, oh, damn, that's how I want to be. Asked. Yes. Yes. Queer so, people. That's what I'm telling you. Like, mm, I know we, I know we might talk about some dating apps, but when I talk into like the ENM, uh, like everyone putting ENM in their dating profiles, I won't go there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think about like what what does all this actually mean and like going back to being a queer storyteller like am I am I telling am I making queer stories about like how queer people actually interact with each other in relationships and sexuality or am I making a digestible version of transness for for a heterosexual audience and right. there are some no. people who do that for money in particular but I'm just not I'm not one of them right yeah oh my gosh I love everything you just said I'm just like I feel like it's wild that we're talking to you right now because Hobbs and I literally have been talking about this kind of thing so much lately just like what because yeah just I've been rereading all about love by bell hooks and mm -hmm. thinking about all of the sort of ingredients for love right commitment being one of them and like how are the various ways in which we show commitment to each other that are really removed from this super heteronormative patriarchal idea of a partner is someone that I like own in some way or I'm trying to oh control God, in some man. way right and it's like yes literally a loving relationship is giving people the space to grow giving people the space to grow because I, and the quote that I sent to Hobbs last night was like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm only on the way. Mm, and I was yes. like, wow. That oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Gay screen. Shit, all this content gets me so high. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the it's just your body like agreeing with the idea that like 
it's just a moment of like being like the feeling that of true like unshacklement of like this fucking conditioning of how you should be and like whatever it should be and like we can like you know that's why linguistics are just so like wild to me mm-hmm. it's like you think that like someone says something like you understand all of it but it's like no like queerness is always 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 investigating like what other words and what words are we using to actually get to like the crux of what we are trying to feel and say and like invite and all of what you guys have just said is just spot on but I think giving some forgiveness too for the fact that language has failed us for so long like Mm -hmm. how long did it take so many of us to arrive on our own identities and our own kind of morals and values because one they're not really taught to us like we're encouraged to engage in monogamous uh heterosexual relationships because that's capitalism right um and like what was it like I saw a a tweet the other day that was like uh if polyamory was normalized society would collapse I'm like no fucking capitalism would collapse because we would figure out ways of coordinating care for each other beyond beyond two partners and one cohabitating space and calling that you know lord knows what I just am not into the idea of like seeing other bodies in a possessive way and I think that jealousy has taught me that um and I'm continuing to unlearn that yeah comes up in very difficult ways at times but um you know investing in the people who will sit with you in those feelings because it's like and I this is such a stolen quote but it's like everybody who tells me they're too jealous to be polyamorous my question is like why is jealousy the trait you're trying to protect yeah (laughs) you don't have to be you could just not be like and and trust me that's going to take some unlearning like society has taught you should be jealous and like your partner pursuing another person means that you're not giving them something also you don't have to be a hundred percent of things for your partner I would prefer if you were not like it's actually impossible I feel impossible it's an unrealistic expectation on both yourself and them and it's like you know I I would never want somebody to like become something they're not to better fit my life like there's room for you if you're only 75 percent of the things I need in a partner right still room for you like there's this like weird scarcity mentality that we have and I think it's because we were told that we're the only people like us so yeah. many times you know how long did I spend thinking like every every lesbian who's into trans women must be the only one because no one no one loves trans women the way they deserve to be loved. And so then I was approaching all these partners with scarcity mentality for years mm-hmm. going like, okay, well, are you the one? You gotta be the one because you're like being really good to me. And it's like, baby, you're U-hauling. You're U-hauling, call right. me out. Right. Oh my God, I was such yeah. a U-haul here. It was so bad. <laughs> I feel like with the jealousy of like, just the concept of jealousy, right? I see that right next to um the feeling versus like the authenticity of like when somebody memorizes pronouns versus actually sees you for who you are and like if i was actually seeing you for a whole other entity of like your whole planet and i'm a whole planet like jealousy sure may arise but i don't think it would take on like the stereotypical stereotypical like energy that it usually has where it's like just leading to violence or however that looks right versus like just i need my needs aren't getting met and like that's up to me to kind of figure out and also like mitigate before I bring it to someone else Mm -hmm. it's like just that actual like I see you versus Mm -hmm. like I'm pedestalizing you or I'm just fetishizing you like whatever it may be it's like an actual like grip like come to grip of terms like you're a human I almost wonder if more more queer people are arriving on polyamorous relationships 
because we're investigating those same questions mm. of like what was prescribed to me and what was not. Um, and I'm thinking about it specifically in the sense of jealousy and, and partnership and all these things. Cause it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about this idea of planet. I, I'm responding to the planets mm. um, in a really positive way. I often tell people that my gender is like a galaxy. Yes. Um, or uh, not my gender, I guess I should say, like gender in particular, mm-hmm. because I get brought in to teach so many like trans 101 workshops because, you know, they want to be inclusive, so they need to hire me to teach them what pronouns are, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty frequently, I'm trying to push them into more uh, meaty content, but they're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll often present that like gender for me is a galaxy and that in many ways, like stars cluster together, that there's like a sort of gravitational pull that can look like binaries. Mm-hmm. So there's like, you know, genders that maybe are clustered near each other, but that within that it's, there's this sort of three-dimensional space where, where there's all of these genders. And so this galaxy model has been one I've responded to yes. um, and misunderstanding that like the clusters of what seems similar are not in fact binaries, that they all do still exist in 3D space. I think that's like a collective thing lately where people are coming away from like, I guess like there's like an, a group elevation or ascension of like the realizing like exactly what you're describing like it's no longer the spectrum of like it, how autistic are you it's like what traits are going on in there like or same with the binary it's like just throw it out <laughs> just throw out all these spectrums it's just there's so much more nuance to it that just is begging to be like shed light on there's so many people who think that okay um i'm inclusive because like i know that there's not just men and women there's men there's women and there's non-binary people in between. Right. No. <laughs> we need no, more. It's a binary model. Yes. Um, and I think more. that people see that in the same way. I think people see like non-monogamy in that way too. Mm-hmm. You're either monogamous or yeah. you're non-monogamous. And they think that that means this ENM uh, thing that I want to go on a little bit of a rant about. Um, I'm sick of people saying that they're ethically non-monogamous. I'm like, that doesn't tell me a goddamn thing about you. <laughs> right. What does that mean? Eth- ethically non-monogamous to me tells me that you are in a relationship with like one other person who knows that you're having sex with other people. That's one form of non. And that's not saying that like, I don't know, maybe other people have used that term and referred to like actual, hmm, let me be choice about my words here because I don't like how that came out at all. I guess what I'm getting at is like, I think there's this sense that like people who put I'm ethically non-monogamous on their profile, like what does, what do your ethics have to do with it? Like, you're not telling me anything about your ethics. Like what you're telling me is that more than likely somebody knows that I'm here. But even right. then, I think that that gives things like relationship anarchy a bad name. Those are not less ethical ways of being. Right. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah. so often ENM couples, they usually are, are like, oh no, like we're actually going to retain our monogamy and our ownership of each other. But because we're having sex with a third person, we're non-monogamous. I'm like, actually, most of your relationship is quite monogamous. Like you right. have like one penis policies. Right. Um, Just hire like, someone at that point. Literally spend your coin on someone who like can have that emotional capacity, like where that's their whole job. Like sex yeah. work is a thing. That's Let them do work. their job. Well, not what they are, but that's a service that a sex worker can offer you. Right. Right. Yeah. Like don't go in and like meet actual poly people who are deconstructing the meanings of relationships and 
having really in-depth conversations about like what it would mean to take on a new partner and how they fit in my life and all these things. And they'd be like, oh no, like we're a monogamous couple. You're just like this third less important person because you're third. Like even right. and in relations and hierarchies and relationships matter. Some people have primaries, some people have secondaries. Like that's all cool and that's all great. But I guess I'm just sick of being approached by couples. Right. Who are yeah. like under the guise of non-monogamy, but then like I meet them and they're very monogamous and like yes. jealous and like part yeah. of what they're doing is prescribing me like as a trans woman who openly has a penis like what I'm allowed to do with that it's really weird to me like that they always have the word ethics in front of it I'm right. just like what does ethics have to do with this that's you know a really good question it's yeah. tough to find that right language as I was telling Lynn's the other day I was like I, okay on my hinge profile I was linking up with someone who had on their profile, I'm poly and married. I was like, I need to put that on my profile. I feel like I don't want to like, I, I felt weird about not having it on there after meeting mm -hmm. someone who did have it on there. And I was like, well, I don't want to like come off like I'm hiding something. So yeah. I put it on there, right? And then got no bites, nothing for like a whole week. Like no one was talking to me. I was like, whoa, like, okay. People are really like, not about- uh, And it's because they think they'd have to compete with your other partner probably. Right. And then I was like, okay, well, let me change the language. So I left Polly out of it and I just added in like, well, I just want to make a connection based on like what makes sense between us and all that. And like people, okay, started coming in again. And then Lindsay pointed out like, well, you could still like be monogamous and have that as there. So I'm like, ugh, like just discerning the right language of like, okay, I'm not trying to like do what you were describing of like treat you like a second-class citizen just because I already have something wrapped up like no not at all like I'm, everything's being approached with the same amount of like care and like thought and like reciprocal like potential like love just in general you know it's but how do you really say that in 20 words or less on hinge hinge <laughs> hold on I'll pull mine up I'll tell you what I wrote, <laughs> I'll tell you what I wrote because I've thought about this for a while yes. because, like as I was making this like I I mean, I'm technically not partnered still, though. I do think that kitty I'm talking to so. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, especially when I made this profile last, like, you know, what am I looking for? Open to a, a variety of traditional and non-traditional partnerships. Let's reimagine the potentiality for queer compassion and care. Like that's, that's so more what I'm looking for than like, you know, I'm allowed to have sex with who I want. <laughs> it's like that's cool that's cool doesn't tell me much about like anything right yeah. right right like, we need details I I have uh one gentleman called uh who I see who like and having boundaries about like playing with or without your partner are not they're not a concern or problem to me but it's like his does his his absolute need that I could never meet her felt like it came from the fact that like he was concerned I posed a threat to the stability of his relationship and I just kind of had to stop seeing kind of stop seeing him because I was like I know about your girlfriend I know who she is she's very hot I see her at the gym all the time um we're all the gay crunch right <laughs> yeah. uh, but I see her there and like if he's there, I'm always like almost a little worried because I'm like, I'm not going to come like blow up your relationship. Like she knows I exist. I know she exists. And it's okay to want to have boundaries about um, 
you know, interactions of your separate partners from each other, but it always kind of felt like it was a result of him potentially wanting to retain some sort of power that I posed a threat to. And that was kind of a big red flag for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, and same thing, like, okay, well, you know, how many, how many women who are fully fucking queer and just like won't admit it are like, oh, I'm dating this man, but he lets me sleep with just women. Oh. Oh, really? Okay. So I'm a woman. So am I? And they're like, oh, no, 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 but not, not, not you. Not you. Because of this like stupid, like one penis policy. Oh my God. Somehow they're demasculated by somebody else being an insertive partner. But like if they, if, if their girlfriend was having sex with a woman, it's okay. It's like, that's just you, like, that's you holding on to power and like calling it non-monogamy so you can watch your little lesbian porn that you want to watch. And I'm not interested in being in that. Right. Ethic- ethical, nonetheless. Ethical, yeah. right. Like, oh, ethical yeah. about you retaining your power and like not giving them the right to see anybody who poses actual threats to what you perceive as the stability of your relationship. Like that's fucked up. Right. That tells me more about your ethics than your fucking hinge profile. Yo. Who better? All the way now. I can smell mm. from a mile away. I'm like, I'm not doing all this. What a but oh poly people who really engage in a deconstruction of what uh, polyamory means to you in relationships and care, like, call me. Yo, like, yeah. If you've taken anything from this conversation, from intimacy directing to hinge, it is all about the details, y'all. All about the details goes. and actually investigating them for what they mean to you. I think we're smart enough to have language for like what we're specifically looking for, be it intimacy choreography, be it a dating app. Like we just got to get better at asking for what we actually want and need. But I think that starts with asking ourselves that. I don't think people ask themselves that at all. I think we're so committed to having partners, right? Because that Mm -hmm. is like a signaling to a larger community that we're desirable. but like, what is it all? I don't know. It's just like, what if we had better language about getting what we needed? Right. Perfect. You think that that's where the intimacy stuff for me goes beyond. Like, I do try to keep a really firm boundary between like my work and my personal life. Hmm. At the same time, having good, like a, a strong ability to discuss boundaries and consent has certainly paid off in dividends in my personal relationships, for sure. I bet. Wow. This has been great. We love it so much. (laughs) I need to know. Yes. About your thoughts on the word pegging. Yes. Okay. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So I think it was about what? Early 2000s. Dan Savage is on a podcast. And there wasn't really a a term that was being used for... um, heterosex specifically heterosexual contact in which the female was the insertive partner and the male was the receptive partner there wasn't a word for that so dan savage ran a contest if you will um and was like what are we going to call this and got a bunch of suggestions and pegging was the one that stuck and the reason i have a lot of problems with this is because of the impulse to name uh, anal pleasure for heterosexual men is fundamentally different than any other acts by having its own word. I think it was a, a way of retaining masculinity and power by calling it something different. 
Like you could literally call it getting fucked in the ass, but that threatens power, I think, to, to like dominant heterosexual ideology. Um, so that's why I tend to really hate the word pegging. Like it obviously really helps like specify when I need to, like what I'm describing, but I think it being like named as different than, um, than other acts was just troublesome in the, in the way of like, it needed to be isolated from normal heterosexual contact as if like, it was different, like a, a man who was uh, receptive to their female partner, like was still heterosexual because it's a heterosexual term, but it is still different than normal heterosexual sex. It's just, it's messy. Right. It's, it's all sex. It's all sex. Like, I think we should just take it back. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, to be honest. Yeah. Um, well, and that's the thing. So then it becomes a question, right? Um, is a trans woman who's receiving their partner via a strap, are they being pegged? I'm not, it, it's not historically used that way. Mm. This, the, like, I don't know. Mm. Right. Like, there's I, part I, of me that wants to reclaim it because I'm like, yeah, somebody pegged me. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is a fun it is a fun word, a fun sort of phrase, I feel, to say. So it's like maybe the goal rather than say, let's take it back. It's like, let's expand it. Anyone mm-hmm. can be pegged. Anyone can peg. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, it is. Right. It's just a fun word. <laughs> no, I really I like it. Like, like it's always fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, oh, I'm super, I'm responding really well to that because yeah, it's like, what if it meant more than, um, hmm. hmm. Well, it's like the word gay, right? Mm, like the mm-hmm. word gay to me is kind of synonymous with queer at this point where I'm just like, I'm gay, you're gay, we're all gay in some way. But obviously, historically, it hasn't been used in that way. So I feel like we're always kind of just reimagining or expanding and contracting the ways in which we're kind of using language but then again it does go back to that sort of specificity and the details of like what do you really mean by that actually what do you really mean by that yeah well and so I'm thinking too like as I'm thinking about specificity of language my mind is going to hate to take it to the extreme here but like the language that's used around trans bodies and like pornography mm-hmm. um and so like I'm thinking about how many times like pegging which is intentionally supposed to refer to a man is used to refer to a trans woman who's a receptive partner which implies malehood on their body Mm. which like and even in and of itself it's never going to be like you know and I'm not going to throw a bunch of those slurs out here but it's always like slur slur fox slur slur and I'm thinking like even in that like how can our language continue to evolve because oh my god how many times I get a grinder message that has some problematic language in it I'm like I'm not even going to respond to this because I would have to teach a like course on gender just to even get you to understand what you said was fucked up right while at the same time wanting my identity to be respected by everyone not just people who have a PhD in gender like at some point I think people use that as an excuse right oh I don't I didn't take gender sexuality women's studies so I don't know how many genders there are so I can't respect you 
it's like, how do we remain accessible? Like you don't need a dissertation to get somebody's pronouns correct. You don't need a dissertation to understand that gender is an expansive field. Right. And so remaining accessible uh, is also a priority to me in that way. It's just exercising a little imagination in your daily life. <laughs> a little bit. Start what there. Stop thinking everything that was given to us was, was like absolute, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wow. Great things to chew on today. I tell you. I know, right? I mean, just being mm-hmm. like, let me hop into my bathroom, get the <laughs> sound, and just start ranting about Lord knows what. God bless. I thank you so much for joining us today, Raja. Honestly, your voice is so wonderful. I wish you had your own radio show. Okay, or just so, maybe you think about audiobooks? Think about it because you sound great. So <laughs> I used to have a lot of dysphoria around my voice, but actually recently, this um not partner who I hope might become a partner, maybe potentially we'll see where it's going, friend of mine. Mm-hmm. We were hanging out the first time we hung out. We were walking you know, through the museum district, real cute, whatever. And they're like, oh, I love your voice. It's deep and sexy. It's kind of like um, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. I ascended. I became a different human in that moment. I believe I that. said, I'm going to record an album. I don't say Yes, please. Yeah, no, it is it. sexy. Like, it's just Roger. You it's sound immaculate. Like, through, shout out to the deep voiced gals. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> Yes. voice girl <laughs> representation god damn it yes. oh my yes. god i fucking love it so where can people follow you if they want to follow your work or if they want to listen to this sexy voice of yours we'll start on hinge um, <laughs> <laughs> um no so i'm on instagram under sample two underscore size um and then uh, my Facebook should just be my name, Raja Benz. I don't really have any other like fun socials or anything, um, but I post a little bit about intimacy directing on there. I'm thinking about eventually getting like a professional Instagram, but you should. Um, I should. So right now I have, okay. I was thinking about getting a Finsta, but I haven't yet, but I did save myself a really fun Finsta name in case. Yeah. Um, that's should exciting. I, should I drop it? I should, no. You should drop it, yeah. Tell okay. the people. Well, if you find it and there's nothing on there, there's why. But um, matching the uh, the S alliteration of sample size, um, I also have a backup account, which is Subaru Strap-On. Um, uh, so that might be a fence at some point. <laughs> we go Don't find that shit right that. now. <laughs> That's yeah, incredible. Maybe, maybe if you're going back and listening to this in retrospect, you're catching up because you missed a few episodes. Maybe go check if that exists, but uh, it doesn't yet. But <laughs> I did save the name for that reason. I was like, somebody's going to steal this. Some lesbian's going to go, you know what? I love Subarus and Strap-Ons. Yes! Doing God's I, work, Raja. As soon as you said that, like 20 of my friends came to mind that I was like, I can't believe that's not their username. For real. <laughs> Well, like I was like messing around. I was like, how do I include a carabiner in here? Yes. Is it like Carhartt carabiner gal 420? Like, what could it be? <laughs> so that's how I wrote Oh my God. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. You know where to go. <laughs> go find that Finsta. Um, maybe maybe <gasps> after this, I'm going to post a congrats. You found it. That's the only thing I could do. Yes. <laughs> All the way to the end of the pod. We'll know. 
Make sure you get those, uh, what are those analytics working in your favor? Yes. <laughs>